Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Seeking Light podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. I have um, somebody with me that I actually don't know. And um, I was just in California spending time with my brother and sister-in-law, Julian Rich. And we were in the kitchen just talking about the podcast and people's lives. And they shared with me um, their friend. His name is Justin Watkins. And um, Julie's like, you've got to interview Justin. He, they, he and his wife are just such good people. And so today you're going to hear about Justin and some of his stories and just how he is seeking light as a doctor and a father and a man of faith. So Justin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning. Beth. <laughs> good. So Justin, let's get started so that everybody can get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up and what are, where are your family dynamics? Okay. Yeah. So I, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona and, uh, very much, uh, childhood in the 80s and um, grew up I I have two wonderful parents and we we are Arizona natives and I, I think Julie I think Julie's an Arizona native yep um, yep so are you a son and a cardinal fan <laughs> funny no I was I was a Suns fan growing up but I never liked the cardinals because they just never won and as a, as a child you want your team to win all the time and and so but then uh, later they did start winning so they, they became a good team but I, I actually liked the um the bears the chicago bears chicago up. bears the refrigerator the refrigerator perry right yeah oh yeah <laughs> mike mike dick uh perry so yeah so you grew up in Phoenix. Okay. And did you, was you, did you have a large family, small family? I have two younger brothers, um, from my mom and my dad. And then I actually have a half brother, but we didn't know about him until I was older. Um, so he, he did not grow up with us, but we know him now and we have a good relationship. And, and so, but yeah, I was the oldest of three, um, three boys for my, my mom and my dad. Cool. And did you, um, when you went through school and you went through high school, um, did you already know where you wanted to go? Did you, um, no. you did not. Okay. So no. how, what, okay. And first of all, too, before I forget, did you grow up in faith? Did you have, did you, were you a member of the church for all your life or what was your family? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Arizona natives, um, my both my mom and my dad's ancestry come from church pioneers and they both both of their lines had settled arizona um all the way back from the pioneer days so amongst the early settlers of arizona uh, my mom's family comes from the eastern um, mountains of arizona and my dad's family settled the southeastern part of arizona Wow. And so like the Pima um, 
Pima Valley area. And, and so in my, for my dad's side and then my mom's side was up in the white mountains area. And so some lots of good pioneer history there. And so I, you know, I tell people that, you know, way back in the day, we were actually Mexicans because I think in the time that was Mexico, but <laughs> um, it, it was like a, I think it was just territories. So when you finished high school, what were your plans? What did you want to do? Um, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have a life plan in high school. My parents had encouraged me to, to make plans, and, but I was kind of um, a fly by the seat of my pants young man and just enjoyed life to the fullest. Um, I played a lot of sports, baseball and football. Um, my big two sports and um, I had a lot of fun I was I was decent at sports um, I think with some extra work I probably could have maybe gone to college for sports but I was just you know I, I just had fun I was a, um, a jock in high school um, I also had some good smarts and I got really good grades without a lot of effort in high school and you're so lucky of, <laughs> I know I am I'm very blessed and <laughs> As a young man, you kind of take those things for granted and you just don't have, um, sometimes you don't have the, you know, the, the wherewithal to see life for what it is and all the blessings that you have. And, and so I didn't have the plans that a lot of young men do and a lot of youth are now doing. They're planning their life out a lot more. And um, I think it was just kind of the product of the generation. Um, everybody assumed we would just go to college. That's right. kind of where the big the big push started for everybody to go to college at the time. But um, and I I assumed I would go to college as well. Um, but I just didn't have a clear picture of my life ahead of me at the time. And so I did start going to college after high school. And um, I found out that I didn't have the discipline to do college. And because high school was so easy for me, um, college demanded a lot more. And I, I, I had the desire I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to earn my college degree, but um, I just didn't have the discipline. So I attended a semester of um, junior college and it, it just wasn't something that I felt that I, I was, at least I was wise enough to realize that I didn't have the discipline to go to college at the time. And it wasn't the amount of understanding. It was just, I was trying to find, um, find out how to be an adult and and so that's when I decided to go into the military when I was 19. Okay had you thought about the military service earlier in your life or was this all new? Oh it was completely new so in fact when the recruiters would come onto the high school campus yeah mm -hmm. uh, I, I would kind of like play games with them and I would tell my friends oh there's no I would never join the navy or I would I've never join the military ever but I would go up there and talk to them just to like lead them along as a joke that's the kind of that's the kind of young man I was um very friendly but also a little mischievous so <laughs> so yeah my I think it, I said it many times I'll never join the military I said those words so then when I was 19 and found out that life as an adult is challenging and i i started praying um I, I prayed for my whole life but 
um, I really started praying with some focus at that point and was reading the Book of Mormon and seeking inspiration on what to do with my life. And I had, I'd had a kind of uh, a moment where, you know, the, you're 19 years old and you're expected to go on a mission. And my bishop had called me in and I knew what the interview was for. And I, I always had a testimony of the church and I always knew the church was true, but like I said, I, I was just a fly by the seat of my pants, young man. And, and so I, I told my Bishop that I didn't want to go on a mission if I haven't read the book of Mormon yet. And I truly meant that. And I was reading the book of Mormon, but I hadn't completed it yet. And I said, well, I want to complete the book of Mormon before I go on my mission. And he agreed that that was a good plan. And so he committed, he helped me make a commitment to finish the Book of Mormon. And I was reading the Book of Mormon every night and praying and diligently. And before I completed the Book of Mormon, I had a, I guess you could call it some revelation for myself or some inspiration that I should join the military. And it truly was an answer to my prayers because I was praying for some direction in life. And so I told my parents and um, my parents were supportive and I could sense the sadness in my mom's voice that I was talking about the military instead of a mission. And that's understandable, but they were very supportive. And, and so, um, so I went in to talk with the recruiters, this time seriously. And I first, you know, I was deciding that, you know, when I went into the, there was some strip mall in Arizona and Phoenix and where they had the, the four branches there, uh, the Army, Navy, Air Force and Marines. And, and I looked at them and I, I remember thinking, well, if you're going to do this, you're, you need to do Hold on a second. Okay, there. Sorry, I got a call. I just turned it off. It's okay. So I, I said, if you're going to do this, then you better be, you know, you don't want to be, I just, you wanted to be all in. You wanted to be all in in the military and do the right thing. And you don't want to mess this one up. So I said, well, I might as well just go to the Marines because the Marines are, they're um, fully the military. Yeah. yeah. Right in. <laughs> yeah. So they are, the Marines are the toughest as well. And I, you know, I wanted <laughs> to be the best and I was like my competitive spirit. And so I, I went in and talked to the Marines and I didn't even go into the, any other branches. And, and I came home and told my mom, I wanted to join the Marines. And so that's when the tears started. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so she got very serious at that point. And I, I, I kind of didn't understand why she was so serious about this, but I did get the message loud and clear, mom, that you did not want me to join the Marines. But she never said I couldn't join the Marines, but she let me know that she would prefer me to not join the Marines. <laughs> and so I said, well, I had already decided to join the Marines, but I was, I would listen to her. So she encouraged me to go and talk to the Navy. And she said, at least before you sign any papers with the Marines, please go and talk to the Navy just to see what they have. Just do it for your mother. 
So I said, well, I love you, mom. So I'll go do that. And I'm so glad she did that because she probably saved my life because that was in 1999. And we were going to go to war in a couple of years. And so the Marines did a lot of that. And Mm -hmm. I'm proud and grateful for, for those young men and women who did go serve in the Marines. But when I went into the Navy office, they convinced me to join the Navy. And it, it was a much different experience. Um, they were not as aggressive um, in, their, in their recruiting efforts to me. Um, they were more factual and just presenting the benefits of the Navy over the Marines. And so I chose to join the Navy. Yeah. How did the Marine recruiter, did you go back and say, hey, sorry, I'm going to join the Navy? <laughs> I didn't go back there at all. The the Navy recruiter said I could, but he said, you don't have to, you don't have to go tell him anything. So. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this was in 1999. Was it like in August? Was it the summertime? Was it? Oh, it was right after my 19th birthday. So it was probably in the December, January timeframe. And then when did you agree to begin? When were you going to head to boot camp? Um, like within three months, I, th- I think I entered boot camp in April or may have been May. I don't remember the exact date, but yeah. So t- talk about your military experience. You go into the Navy where after boot camp, I mean, did you learn a lot during boot camp? What were your, where did they assign you? What were your experiences out on sea? I mean, were you just share everything you can? Because then, you know, 2001, 9 11 hits. So that changes yeah. a lot. So share some of those. Yeah. Some of that information with that time. Sure. Well, um, I told you that I was praying a lot. And so I, I think that prayer had a lot to do with me joining the military and also with joining the Navy as opposed to the Marines because. Um, that decision has proven to be a beneficial decision for me, even to this day. And because the Navy provided a training program to learn about nuclear engineering and how to run a nuclear power plant and how to run the engineering plant on ships in the Navy. And so I joined that program. It's called the Nuclear Power Program in the Navy. And that offers you two years of schooling before you even go to a ship. So I joined that program. I went, everybody goes through boot camp. So I did boot camp. Boot camp was easy. I mean, if you can stand up straight and um, be quiet and make your bed and fold your clothes and, you know, run a little bit, boot camp's easy, especially for someone who went through football and, and things like that. It really wasn't difficult for me. I think the Marines offers a lot more like grueling or rigorous boot camp or basic training, but the Navy was pretty easy. And so after boot, boot camp wasn't even a significant experience for me. It was just kind of like a process where you start the Navy. And then, uh, but then I did two years of school at the Navy nuclear power training command. And where's uh, that located? Goose Creek, South Carolina. Wow. It's North of Charleston. Um, and in Charleston, South Carolina. So um, that was a new experience for me. I'd never left the Southwest uh, United States. And so then I, you know, I'd go out to the East Coast 
as a 19 year old. And then I start rigorous um, school with uh, calculus and advanced physics and nuclear engineering and chemistry, thermodynamics, and metallurgy. <clears throat> so all these engineering classes in the military school for two years. Had they, had they tested you beforehand and saw your scores were so high and like led you to that way? Or did you literally find so much interest in that? You're like, this is what I want to do. They did. So yeah, everybody takes the ASVAB to join the military and as enlisted, <clears throat> and which is what I was. And so you take the ASVAB and I scored uh, like a 99 on the ASVAB, which is the highest score. And then based on your ASVAB scores, they give you options as to what programs you can are available to you. And so that was one of them. And, you know, me with my um, desire to be the best, I went from wanting to be a Marine grunt to, oh, now I want to be the biggest nerd in the military. So uh, <laughs> I told you I was fly by the seat of my pants, right? Yeah, yeah. So, that's good. That's good. so that's, that's kind of how I made that decision. And um, so they said, well, this is the most schooling that the Navy can provide you is this program. And it translates into college credits. It's taught by MIT professors. Wow. And um, so I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so I, I joined the military as a Navy nuclear um, reactor operator, and I became an electronics technician. And you learn, you learn quite a bit about electronics and um, uh, computer science as well in that program. So, uh, so I did that for two years, and it's a rigorous program. They do have an attrition rate in that program. Um, oh. So they, the Navy nuclear power program is... Um, they have a lot of integrity in selection and making sure that everybody is uh, proficient and competent enough to operate the nuclear power plants so that they don't have any nuclear accidents in the Navy. And you don't hear about nuclear accidents in the Navy at all because of that program. So, so I went through that program and I, I did well. I was in the top half of my class and was proud to be a graduate of, of that program. And I went to a prototype where they put you on a learning nuclear reactor. And that's up in upstate New York in Schenectady, New York. And I did that for six months, all before I went to the submarine. Oh, my gosh. Did you ever think, what am I doing? Or did the excitement just keep accelerating as you were learning more and experiencing more? Yeah, it's definitely the excitement kept accelerating. Um, it was, it was grueling and difficult, um, but remember I started my journey looking for direction in life and uh, remember I didn't have the discipline to go to college, but then I throw myself in this uh, military experience where I'm like in this grueling engineering program with a thread of attrition and military rules all stacked on top of it. So um, it was exactly what I was trying to avoid, but exactly what I wanted at the same time. Same time. So. Yeah. So you finish the program, you go up to upstate New York. What do they, where, what happens after that? Where did, had, ha, so obviously 9-11 had happened, correct? Or had oh, no, not, not, not yet. yet. Okay. No, in fact, I was in New York in 2001 and I graduated the program in April <clears throat> or uh, a little bit later than that, like in early summer, June. But in April, I had gone with some friends 
in the Navy, we went to New York City to go check it out because we'd never been to New York City. And so we went to the Twin Towers in April of 2001 and took pictures and went to the top and um, had all these pictures of the World Trade Center. And um, I remember being on top there and feeling the building sway and um, just being amazed at how tall these buildings were. And that was in April 2001. And then I graduated uh, the program and later in a few months later than that and got assigned to uh, the USS Wyoming, which is a a boomer class missile sub or an Ohio class missile submarine out of um, Kings Bay, Georgia. And that was in the summer of uh, 2001. So. And what was your responsibilities on the submarine? Uh, so when you first get there, you, you basically become um, like a, a new, they call them a noob like a new person on the sub. So you're a noob, meaning that you don't have any certifications on the submarine, so you're not allowed to touch any of the equipment. So basically you're only good for cleaning things and, and helping out in the galley, helping make food and clean up. So um, it's, uh, it's an incentive program to help you certified to do actual jobs on the submarine. So once you get there, <clears throat> you have to start working on certification and and there's a whole program there to get you certified with basic jobs first, and then you build up from there. And so I was, I was working as a noob and trying to keep my head down and working with my division in the, in the engineering department and <clears throat> just trying to fit in and figure out what to do as a, as a submariner. And, and so I was just doing it, um, trying to do my best. Did you ever feel claustrophobic? <laughs> Or, I mean, how long no. would you be down in the sea? I mean, what, what were your, um, I can't think of the right word. Like, um, go, how long would you be out? What was the. Yeah. So the deployment experience, we going out to my first submarine was, it was a pretty memorable experience. I got to the base in Kings Bay and the ship was already out to sea. They were already on a deployment. And so the command um, leader there told me that they were going to ship me out to the submarine. And I, you know, so they said, well, you know, show up on this day with your sea bag and wear this uniform. And um, at this point we'll be there. And so I would go there and um, there was, there was like three or four of us that were meeting the ship. And so the ship is out to sea. And when they get new people on, at least at this time, um, they shipped the people out on a tugboat. So I took a four hour tugboat ride out into the Atlantic ocean. <laughs> and that was the first and the last time I've ever been seasick. And so that the, the waves and the swells, they seem like 30 feet. The, the tugboat would just um, go up on a swell and then just pound down. And we did that for four hours over and over and over. Imagine just, yeah, just going up on these huge swells and then the boat just going over them and then falling down on you know the, on the ocean behind you know behind the sea swell and over and over and over and i was so seasick that's all i remember from that ride we all were i think everybody was and after four hours it finally stopped and then the boat slows down and i was feeling like death at this moment because of all the seasickness and then but then the this the tugboat slowed down and we all stand up and we see the boat out there kind of on the horizon of the water 
that's on the surface, this big submarine. And at this point, you can't see anything. You can't see anything except water all the way around you, 360 degrees. So I, I'm out in the middle of the ocean. I can't see any land. I don't know a single person on this boat. And there's a United States submarine out on the horizon of the ocean coming towards us. And so it started to get real at that point. And so, but, you know, I was a courageous um, young man. And so I, I was excited and we, we get closer to the ship and then we, we come up right next to it and they, they drop the, the, um, uh, the moor and you could walk across. We, I walked across the bridge over to the, the deck of the submarine and somebody was there to take my, my sea bag. And then I went down the hatch and that's how I entered the submarine. And so at the bottom of the hatch was somebody from my division there ready to meet me. And he started showing me around and within an hour, we were under the water. We started diving and he took me to the back of the submarine where the propeller shaft um, goes right through the hull. And he showed me around the engineering department and we were standing there and he was smoking a cigarette by the, um, by the shaft. And as we started to dive and um, there's this whole process for diving the ship and and, you know, they come over the 1MC and they say, dive, dive. And you could feel the ship kind of angle down and you have to hold on to something or else you'll fall over. And we went down into the ocean. And that was my first experience going underwater in a submarine. Um, and so that's how I started my submarine service. And I enjoyed the whole time. Um, I was I served there for three and a half years on the USS Wyoming. Um, I think you asked how long I'd been out to sea. The longest deployment was like 93 days. Okay. And so I was, I was underwater for 93 days one time and I did not see the sun for 93 days. What was that like when you came out of that submarine and you saw the sun? It's, it's a memorable experience. I can still remember um, what it feels like. It, it's, it's remarkable. It's like, um, yeah, you just feel it on your skin and it feels warm and it feels real and it feels like you're home. It really does. It, it's a good feeling. You know, you come up topside and usually when you come back from a deployment, you usually come back in the morning. So you usually arrive sometime in the morning. And so the sun is up, it's in the Eastern sky and you, you walk topside. Everybody's excited because that's the greatest thing. You go topside and you, you just feel the sun on your skin you look around, you breathe the fresh air. It's the first fresh air you've breathed in three months. And um, it just feels like home. You feel like you're at home because you were on a mission for the last three months and you feel like you left earth kind of. So, so when um, you get done those 93 days, how much time do you have to go and um, have a break? And then when do you need to be back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the schedule underway on a submarine is pretty uh, gruesome. I'll tell you that. It's not fun. It messes with your sleep. So you don't have a normal sleep schedule. You go on a 18-hour rotating schedule. So they're broken up into six-hour blocks. And every six hours, you change and you're doing something else. And so you work on an 18-hour day which is kind of hard to understand at first, but 
you so basically let's say you you wake up at six in the morning and then from six to noon you are on watch meaning you're, you're standing over some equipment that you're in charge of and you are monitoring the equipment you're logging numbers from the equipment um, you're just watching the equipment and you're operating it if things need to be changed like the ship is going through maneuvers where the ship needs to go faster or do things then you have to operate this equipment to make the ship do what it's doing and you're you can't leave so that's your job for six hours and so there then after that six hours then like from noon to 6 p.m you would be doing maintenance or um, training and that's your time to study or to do maintenance or other types of um, duties that don't require you to be standing over the equipment but you're you still have some duties and then you have six hours to sleep. So then you would be required to sleep from 6 p.m. to midnight. And then you have to, then you start the whole cycle over again. Then you'll be on the watch from, from like midnight to 6 a.m. And then 6 a.m. to noon, you're doing your auxiliary duties. And then noon to 6 p.m., you'll be sleeping again. How did you so, manage your mind? Oh, it is, let me tell you, it, it is uh, not fun. You, you really have to just get through it and you learn to deal with it. Um, you go, I remember going through, like, I remember there was like two week cycles where for two weeks I would be just exhausted constantly 24 seven. There's nothing that can take your tiredness away and you could sleep all the time. And so you, you have to fight sleep when you're supposed to be on watch and when you're supposed to be working and studying, you know, you have to read these technical books and take tests on them, but yet you're, you're dog tired. And then after the, those two weeks, then you can't sleep at all. You go through this insomnia period where you have like two weeks where you cannot sleep, but you're still dog tired. The fatigue doesn't leave you, but you can no longer sleep. And so it's, it's in a form of torture. And then after you know, those four weeks, you kind of, I remember the way I did it. I, I just, my body started to react um, and or I guess adjust to that, to that cycle. And you just learn to find some comfort in it. It's never fully comfortable, but you're able to manage and to like not have that constant fatigue and insomnia going on. And so, yeah, it took me about a month to fully get adjusted to, to the schedule there. Some people do better than I did with it. And some people do a lot worse. So, uh, wow. Yeah. So you spent three years on the USS Wyoming and then, um, what happened after those three years, where did they send you? So after the three years was up, I, I hadn't fully completed the time there because I, I had this eye condition, um, where I started actually went blind in my actually both eyes for over the period of two weeks. And what? so I had this, I, yeah, I had a condition called iritis and I started to be my, my eyesight kind of left me over the, over the period of two, two weeks. And it was very painful. So my eyes were hurting. I'd gone to the, the Navy medical office and they misdiagnosed me for two weeks. And then I, to where I couldn't even, see and I couldn't drive myself to work and that's when they decided to to get me to an ophthalmologist and so um, I went to an ophthalmologist and 
she immediately diagnosed me correctly and said, well, yeah, you have really bad iritis. Here's some medicine to make it better. But it took, at that point, I could no longer serve. So they had to change my, I went on a, like a medical assignment where I just worked in the Navy legal office. And, um, and so I was there um, in the Navy legal office, like the JAG office for, I think, a good eight months or so. When did you, were you afraid your eyesight would never come back or did they say, look, it will come back. It just takes time. I I was afraid at first, but once, once I got to the ophthalmologist, she assured me it would come back. So, and it wasn't like I had gone like black vision where I couldn't see anything. Um, but my vision was so, I, I couldn't understand, or I couldn't see, I saw light and I saw colors, but it was all smeary. To where I couldn't even make out how many fingers I was holding up in my own fingers. And so it was that bad. Um, and it took, it took about two weeks to get there. And I kept going to the Navy, the Navy medical office, but they would send me to an optometrist who really just kind of prescribes glasses and they just misdiagnosed me. They said I had pink eye and they kept giving me antibiotics and, um, didn't dilate my eyes and look back and see that I actually had iritis, but the ophthalmologist was pretty perturbed that uh, they misdiagnosed me though. So, Oh, I bet. Yeah. So you work in this JAG office for eight months and then where did they assign you? Well, that's, so that's where, um, okay. So this is where this was all a big blessing. So remember I had told, my bishop that I wanted to read the book of Mormon before I went on a mission. Yeah. So it, I had completed the book of Mormon um, during that first year in my Navy, in the Navy or on the submarine. And, and so I, I think I had stopped reading it daily during school because I, I was so focused on school. I spent like 10 hours a day reading and studying that I, I just didn't want to read anymore. So um, I did read the Book of Mormon during Navy school, but not not like rigorously like I was doing. So after I got to the submarine, I started reading the Book of Mormon again daily. And um, so I read and, and I made it a goal. I said, now now you're going to finish reading the Book of Mormon. And I finished reading the Book of Mormon. And I prayed to Heavenly Father and asked if he would... Um, give me a witness that the book is true. And I did have a testimony already, but I I wanted to make it official. I wanted to complete that commitment that I made to myself and my bishop earlier. And so I did that. And then um, a few months later, I had uh, a remarkable experience where the the spirit completely um, converted me and confirmed to me that the Book of Mormon is very true and that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And I, I was given a, a remarkable gift of faith and testimony at that time. And I, I attribute that to be by to reading the Book of Mormon. And that was an answer to my prayers. And um, it was a, a number of experiences that were so powerful that it changed me completely. And I, I felt wonderful knowing that my heavenly father had answered my prayers. And, um, and so that's when I said, well, I wish I would have gone on a mission. So, <laughs> um, 
the fly by the seat of my pants young man, you know, now said, well, I want to go on a mission now. I, I did what I did what I was supposed to do. Um, I was talking to my bishop at the time and, and he said, well, why don't you talk to, um, talk to the Navy legal office? And, and he said, I'll go talk to Salt Lake. And so he sent a message to, through the state president to Salt Lake about how, how to get a, a military service member on a mission. And, and then I went to the Navy legal office to ask them about that. In the Navy legal office, um, I talked to the lawyer and she, the JAG officer, and she said that um, there really wasn't a direct way to do it. She goes, there's an indirect way to do it, but I don't know if you want to do that. And, and I said, well, what is that? And she goes, well, you'd have to have some type of disciplinary action to get you out of the Navy. And she goes, that just doesn't seem like a... Um, doesn't seem like a an option a, uh, yeah and I said yeah no that's not an option I don't want to do that and then at the same time you know the, our bishop got the the um word back from Salt Lake that um the the church does have an agreement with like the army and the marines but does not have one with the with the navy and so the understanding is just to complete your your time in the navy and if you um get out of the navy in time to serve a mission, then you can still go do that. And if not, then, you know, the Lord will honor your, your military service, service. As, mm -hmm. as a, as a mission to your country, and you can work to spread the gospel while you're in the military. So I accepted that. And I actually, let me back up. I didn't accept that. I said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, my favorite scripture in the Book of Mormon is First um, Nephi three seven, and uh, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. Yes, and you know, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save He shall prepare a way for them to accomplish the thing that He has commanded them. And I felt commanded to serve a mission. I really did, and I felt that the joining the military was an answer to my prayers. So I felt that that's what I was doing. And I, I recognize my choices in it. I, I didn't go serve military or in the, in the mission when I had left home, but that was my choice. And so I wasn't angry or upset, but I, I held this hope that the Lord would provide a way. And so I started making that my entire spiritual focus. Um, I was a little obsessed with it in a way. And I, you know, um, I was serving in callings in the church. I was active on our branch in the submarine. And uh, we had a little, a little branch on our submarine. There were six members at the church on the submarine and we'd go out to sea. And there were three of us who were active and, and then the three who were not as active, they, they became very active when we were out to sea. And, and then we actually had a missionary experience um, where one of uh, one of the shipmates got baptized, and, um, and so that was a not not while we were on the submarine, but he, you know, we talked to them about the church, and he started coming to sacrament meeting, and when he was in port, he got baptized, and um, that happened a little bit before um, I got there, but so it wasn't it wasn't a direct um, you know thing that I was doing, but he was a new convert when I when I got there, and so we had a really good. A really good time. 
um, every Sunday there's an hour given to all um, service people in the submarine to go and have a church service. And so there's a Catholic service, there's a Protestant or non-denominational service, and then there was a Latter-day Saint service. And so we held we held a sacrament meeting and it was, uh, I remember those times. It was really, really special. Oh, that's awesome. So what did you, what did your prayers get answered? What, how did you? Um... Yes. So I had come full circle at the time. So then I got assigned to the Navy legal office, the same office to where I had gone before to ask about getting out of the military. And um, before, before I had this problem with my eyes um, that took me off the submarine and sent me to the Navy, Navy legal office, I had gone to, um, or I was praying and fasting. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I fasted um, for a miracle to happen to be uh, able to go on a mission. And, and so I, um, I was praying a lot. And then I was serving as the elders quorum president and in my family ward of like 350 people in on near the base there. And so I knew the stake president, um, and, you know, I'd have PPIs with him and I was, I was active in the YSA, um, group there in the area, had a lot of fun. I went to Institute, um, but I would never date. I wouldn't date anyone. And, um, I must've been a catch because as soon as well, I'll tell you, so there, I wouldn't date at all. And I think the word got back to my stake president because he there was one um ppi where he brought me in and he he just started asking me about dating and and he said that he was concerned that i wasn't dating anyone and and so i i said well and i told him i said well president i'm i'm actually focused on trying to go on a mission and and he listened to me and and he said well and he thought about it but then he, he told me, he said, well, it sounds like you're not going to be able to serve a mission at this time in your life. And I think the Lord wants you to stop praying for that. I think the Lord wants you to focus on getting married. And that was a, that was a shock to me, but I, I followed his counsel and I said, okay, all right, I'll stop focusing and praying on this. And so I went home and I said one last prayer. And I said, you know, if you want me to serve a mission, then please you know, make it make the way happen. I'm going to stop asking and I'm going to follow my state president's counsel. So I did that. And I that was the last time I prayed for a miracle to go on a mission. And I started focusing on dating like the state president had counseled me to do. And then I immediately had seven girlfriends that, that same month. And at the same time, and then they all found out about it. And then I had zero girlfriends, but <laughs> yeah, that's probably but, not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, that was interesting. So, um, I remember in fact, one day I had three dates on the same day. I just, I was, just, I don't know what I was doing, but, um, they figured that out. You were flying by the seat so. of your pants. <laughs> still, I was still flying by the seat of my pants. Yes. And so, um, but none of them ended up being really serious. They were, it was just fun. And, you know, they were, I had known all of them from Institute and other YSA activities. So I think 
I think the young lady scene was pretty intrigued by this mysterious Justin Watkins and I, they would never go on a date with anybody. And so, um, you know, that was a, that was a good couple months. And that was at the same time um, that I was working in the Navy legal office, uh, you know, just getting, I was doing the eye drops and the medicine to help my eyes get better. And so um, about that time was when, or right after that time, um, I, <clears throat> I had an investigation done um, on me because the, so there was a civilian that I worked with to oversee my, in my assignment to the Navy legal office. I, there's a civilian person who assigns me that. And they didn't turn in a paperwork um, for, to the Navy saying why, you know, every month they have to turn in a piece of paper. I go to that civilian and I'd say, yes, I'm, you know, turning my, my medical paperwork and say here, you know, I went to this medical appointment and they say, okay, that's why you're on, um, that's why you're on shore duty. You're not at the submarine. That was just how the Navy kept track of where their sailors are and why they aren't at sea. And so I, I had my monthly appointment with the ophthalmologist and I was nearing completion of that. And I didn't even have to turn in the paperwork. The civilian worker, he just, he got that directly from the ophthalmologist, but all I had to do was just go show up and um, say, hi, I'm here. So he forgot to turn in a piece of paper. And the way the Navy works is if there's a problem with paperwork, um, it's the sailor's fault no matter what, that's just the way the military works. They don't even ask questions. So they, um, I come to work one day and they say that, you know, well, you're under investigation. And I said, well, okay, well, why? And they said, because you're not supposed to be on shore duty. And I said, well, that's not true. I, I, you know, I've been going to see this eye doctor. I go every month. And I have like one or two appointments left or something. And, um, they said, well, well, we're going to find out about that. And this was my supervisor. Um, she was, uh, she was nice. She was a friend, but as soon as I was under investigation and I was like the enemy. So, um, that's just the way the military works. They don't, they're not friendly. They don't ask questions. They just do what they're told. And so I started to get really worried because I said, well, why am I under investigation? And I wasn't allowed to go and talk to that civilian guy anymore. And, and so they, you know, the, the Navy investigation office was overseeing it. So I was really starting to get worried and they were threatening me and um, all these, all these threats. And I didn't know what to do. And so I went and um, prayed and I talked to my stake president and actually I hadn't talked to them yet, talked to him yet, but I was praying and fasting and I was at work like the next day. And I remember my friend um, who was an officer um, he knew me and he was in the ward with me and he literally just walks in the front door of the Navy legal office and he goes, Hey, Hey, um, how are you? And I said, well, I'm not doing well. What's, why are you here? And he goes, I literally just was told by the spirit to come and see you. He goes, I, I've never even been in this office, but I was told that, um, that I needed to come see you what's going on. And 
so I just went in the other room and I told him everything that was going on. I said, man, I'm, I'm under investigation right now and I didn't do anything wrong, but they don't seem to believe that. And, and so, um, he just listened to me and I, I said, you know, um, Kelly, can you, his name's Kelly Lang. And he said, um, I said, would you give me a blessing? Cause I'm really needing some direction here. I was starting to worry cause I didn't want to get in trouble in the Navy. And if you get in trouble, it's just, it's just a bad road. And so um, he gave me a blessing and in the blessing, it said that, um, you know, fear not all these things will work together for your good. And so that was comforting, but I didn't directly see how this would be a blessing for me. I was still frightened. I was under investigation for um, malingering is what they were calling it. And so um, you know, I thanked him for that. And that was a, that was an interesting experience, but I, um, went home that night and I was praying and remember I was fasting and I, I was just on my knees and, um, I heard a voice and this was the only time I've prayed and directly heard the voice and, um, definitely caught my attention and the voice said that this is your opportunity to go on a mission and this will be your the answer to your prayers i want you to serve a mission and that was such a clear voice i i felt a lot of peace from it, it was the first time i felt peace after they told me i was under investigation and um and so i i was a little shaken by it and i didn't know you know what do i do i heard a voice and people are going to think I'm schizophrenic and that I'm just making this up. And, you know, people, how do I tell people at church, I'm not going to tell the state president I'm under investigation and he's going to wonder what, what I did and all these things. So I started to be afraid and um, the spirit told me just to no, go, go talk to your state president. So I went and talked to him and uh, it was the next day I talked to him and he said, I told him about the voice and I said, well, I, I um, was told that I, oh no, sorry, before I talked to him, I went in the next day and I went and talked to the JAG officer who was in the office that I worked at. And she was the same one that I had talked to years ago about going on a mission. And I just told her, I told her everything that was going on. And she was the only one in the office who believed that I really wasn't malingering. And she said, yeah, I don't think you're malingering. I think the civilian messed up and he threw you under the bus and said that you were lying so that he wouldn't get that because he knew that sailors aren't going to be believed and they're not going to question the civilian government worker and so she goes i believe that's what happened here and he, she goes but i can't really prove anything and i i told her i said well, well remember um and she actually brought it up and she said i saw that when i when you came in here i looked through your file and i saw that you had been to me a few years earlier about going on a mission. And she goes, is that something you still want to do? And I said, yes. And she said, well, we might be able to make that happen through this. And I said, oh my goodness, or, you know, what would it be anything negative? And she goes, well, you'd have to go through a captain's mast just to do the process. She goes, but you won't have any permanent problems from it. She goes, we could, administrative separate you right now because the military wants to um, get people out of the military because at this time they were starting to 
they had pumped up the military for the wars and now they were getting they were trying to get rid of people and i said well i don't want to have like a dishonorable discharge he goes no it'll be it'll be a honorable uh, discharge and so i i said well i can't believe this so I, I went and talked to my state president and i told him i said well this is a big deal for me i don't know if i want to do this or not and he goes well the spirit told you to do it so don't don't deny the holy ghost and so i went and they i went to the captain's mast and um they they said that um they could administrative discharge me and they did that and so i got a discharge um under honorable conditions from the military and to go be able to serve a mission and the stake president um, had written a letter to the navy explaining everything and that's when the 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 captain said yeah that's that's a that's an honorable thing to do so we will let you go do that wow so i left the military and <clears throat> uh, went to go serve a mission and where did you get called to anaheim california oh. <laughs> Yeah, and how yeah. did you feel about that call? <laughs> no, it doesn't matter where we serve, but I always ask that. Uh, of course, you know, I was I was just excited and grateful after that long journey to be able to go on a mission. So, um, you know, I was actually very excited and happy, and it was a Spanish speaking mission. So, um, I you know was excited to learn Spanish and had an amazing time in Anaheim, and and I was still I hadn't lost my sense of humor. I still joked with the other missionaries because they knew I was a little bit older and they said, you know, um, you know, ask me about my Navy experience. And, and then, uh, we would joke with some of the newer ones. We we're like, yeah, you know, you know, um, elder Watkins, he, he has children. And, <laughs> and so, and that you just see the look on these, like, uh, these greenies faces and it's just like, Oh, Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's cool. Have, <laughs> how many kids do you have? I'm like, Elder, I'm just joking. I don't have any kids. I just, <laughs> I just served in the military. It's not why I was, you know, it's not why I delayed my mission was uh, because of that. So, so you you go on your mission, and how old were you? Are you when you return home? Oh, I was twenty. Uh, I was like just turned twenty eight, I think. When you got home. Yeah. Okay. So share about a little bit about how you met your wife. So I got home and I went um, directly to school. I started, you know, um, finishing up my, um, I had a bachelor's degree, which I earned in the Navy, but I wanted to do some, some um, pre-medical coursework because I wanted to apply to medical school. So I immediately started working or um, studying at, at ASU, going to school at ASU. And, and so my, my wife's parents lived um, in the same neighborhood as my parents. And my wife was um, at BYU at the time. And I, um, my dog is bugging me, hold on. <laughs> he wants to play, so let me, he was direct, distracting me. So, um, so my, my mother-in-law, saw me and my brother, we were in um, primary doing a sharing time about serving a mission because he was getting ready to go on his mission and I had just got home from my mission. And my mother-in-law saw me in primary and she felt that she wanted to introduce me to her daughter. 
So she called my mom and proposed that option. And I guess she also called Courtney and proposed that option. And my reaction was not good. I I didn't like the idea of an arranged marriage. <laughs> yes. No, not at all. I was I was very much against that. Pretty much like I was against going into the military. And, <laughs> and so this I, is a pattern, Justin. This is a pattern. <laughs> very true. So I I um I was I put up a huge protest and uh, I might have hurt my mom's feelings when she talked to me when she asked me about that. And, um, sorry, mom, but I had already apologized for that. But um, she, I had since thanked her because she she told me about that, and I of course said, "No way, I'm not ever gonna meet somebody through somebody, and I'll find my own wife." And and, and then I had a little softening in my heart and. Um, so, okay, well, I guess I'll meet her. And well, that was after my brother showed me a picture of her on Facebook. So that's when I said, oh, okay, maybe I could meet her. So <laughs> then, um, I'll be honest there. So that's really what it was. But um, so I saw the picture. I said, okay, I guess I could meet her. And then we just started emailing and talking on the phone and quickly fell in love just talking to each other. We'd never met in person and so she was coming home for valentine's day and i said well why don't we meet and um she said okay and so i started to think about what i was going to do go on a date with her and we were talking a lot at this point we just really clicked um you know when your personalities just click really really well and that's what was happening and so i felt super comfortable with her and um, I, I knew, I knew before she even got home that I was going to marry her. I just knew it. And it scared the living daylights out of me. I was, I was frightened at this point. I said, I, I can't get married. I'm not gonna, I gotta go to medical school and gotta do all these things. But I, this was, this was no question in my mind. I was going to marry her. So I said, well, what if she doesn't want to marry you? <laughs> so I, I, you know, I had that problem as every young man does, you know, I want to marry her, but I got to get her to want to marry me. So, <laughs> um, anyway, we were talking and I pretty much got the hint that she really was into me after talking with me. So I took a, took a chance and I told her, well, I'll pick you up at the airport. And so I, I showed up at the airport on Valentine's day to pick her up. And I had, um, a bunch of roses and, um, a big smile and she came down the runway and I just like opened my arms and hugged her. And then I immediately started kissing her right in the airport. And we kissed, I don't know, it seemed like 30 minutes. We just kissed in the airport right there. And <laughs> there was, it was awkward. This, uh, yeah. Well, you know, it was like, uh, it was a romantic thing. So we kissed and there was, we had like a, I don't know. It must have been like out of a movie because we had an audience. There was people around us just staring at us and we were just kissing and it, it felt like, you know, that magical kiss. And, and then we stopped kissing and I, I just looked at her. I said, so when are we getting married? And her eyes got huge and she goes, Oh, well, 
we'll talk about that later. <laughs> and so um, that's how that's how I met my wife. And it turns out she did want to marry me too, but she just wanted to be sure that I wasn't, um, or that I was, you know, not a scary Le- person. Legit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, what so. what year did you get married? 2008. 2008. Okay, so you, as you go forward, you're in medical school. Where do you, where do you do your residency? Um, and so I did medical school in Arizona, Midwestern University. And then I did, I started a neurosurgery residency here in California. Okay. So can you share a little bit? That's some of the thing that Rich and Julia shared with me is about you had this plan to be a neurosurgeon and mm-hmm. the road was a little bit diverted. So what happened? Yes. Yeah. And so this is a pattern in my life where I start something and then um, I'm taken in a different direction and, and I'm okay with that. But I, I started medical school and neurosurgery was always near the top of my list of things I wanted to do. Um, I did have some other options, but neuro, neurosurgery was right up at the top. And so I worked hard during medical school to be able to make that a, an option. And I pulled out all the stops and I did it. I got accepted to a neurosurgery residency program here in California. So excited. We were, um, we were doing that life and I, um, I knew it was grueling. I knew it was a lot of work, um, but we were committed and, and I was doing it. So I, I completed three years of neurosurgery residency. And during the last six months, I started to have a, another medical condition. And I started, it's called thoracic outlet syndrome, where my, my arms, my hands started to become really weak. Um, I had numbness and tingling in my hands. And I lost coordination in my hands. And I got, it came on gradually. Um, it wasn't like my eyes that just started happening quickly. It, it came on slowly, but I started noticing it. Um, I was doing some self-physical therapy, stretching and um, posture exercises. And neurosurgery is uh physically demanding, um, not like the military is, but just in, you, you know, you're constantly standing, you have to hold, you know, um, positions for a little while and you have to have good dexterity and um, control of your hands and fingers. And, and I, I was really good at all the procedures and surgeries I was doing before. And, um, I, I was loving residency, but then my hands started failing and I started having problems. I was dropping instruments and I had three, three problems where I was, uh, um, I made some physical mistakes during the procedures, um, because of my hands. And that's when, um, that's when I had to stop, stop doing neurosurgery. And I, I was, I was communicating with my fellow residents, my chief resident, and they were aware that I was starting to develop this. And so it wasn't like a shock to them, um, but they had, w- they had watched it too. And I, I didn't really have any pressure from anybody to, to stop. It wasn't like that, but they were just noticing my hand starting to, to mess up and I was no longer good at procedures anymore. And um, the whole time I was trying to figure out, I was trying to get a diagnosis. Well, what's going on? And, you know, being a neurosurgeon, we all thought I was having something wrong with my, my spine, you know, the nerves coming out of my neck was being pinched and we were just going to do surgery on me and fix it. 
Um, but none of the tests were, were showing that. It, I actually had three MRIs of my neck. Um, and there's no reason to get three of them. You can just get one. But we, we didn't believe it because I was having so many problems. I got three MRIs of my neck and um, showed there was nothing wrong with, with my spine and my neck. And so it was a mystery. And, and so um, thoracic outlet syndrome is a condition where your um, nerves and veins and arteries inside your shoulder, um, in between your neck and your shoulder, get pinched. And so uh, after a long process of trying to diagnose myself, I came to the conclusion that I had thoracic outlet syndrome. And I got a diagnostic study and at Loma Linda University here, and it proved that yes, I did have thoracic outlet syndrome and I had 90% occlusion of my subclavian vein on my left side. And so that was causing um, ischemia um, of, my, of the nerves, like the, the fine nerves of my hand and arm and causing some muscle weakness and loss of, uh, loss of control of my hands. My left side was worse than my right side, but it, it was also on my right side as well. And so I, that was in 2016 and I had just completed three years and I was just starting my fourth year of neurosurgery residency. And I got the diagnosis and I knew at that time that I said, this is it. I, it's a long road to come back from thoracic outlet syndrome. And I can, I can do that because um, it's, you know, you have to have physical therapy which sometimes works, but when you have the occlusion of the vein, you really just need surgery. And the surgery is a difficult surgery. It's a rare one that's done. It's not done by uh, very many surgeons. And so I, I said, well, I, I need to take some time to take care of this. And so I, I took medical leave from um, neurosurgery residency and started to look for a surgeon and that is a very long story, but the, um, the process of finding a surgeon was a difficult one. And they, uh, they, so the, in the, pro, in the meantime, I had stopped neurosurgery residency. I would just have um, our third baby, Colby, and our third son. And he was born in um, June. And I um, took medical leave from neurosurgery in, on September 1st. So we just had a newborn. And I started working um, in an urgent care clinic um, near our home um, through just networking people I knew. And so I started earning money, um, a lot more than I was doing as a, a neurosurgery resident. And so I was able to provide for the family while I was doing my medical leave. and. So that's, uh, and our lifestyle changed quite a bit then too. I was, you know, nurse or neurosurgery residents work a hundred hours plus a week. And, and so, um, you know, I went from doing that to uh, working maybe like 40 or 50 hours a week. And, and I was looking for a surgeon. Um, I could not find a surgeon here in the area that would do my surgery because it is a rare surgeon surgery and it carries a lot of risk with it. And you're not trained in it and if you don't do it frequently you can cause some bigger problems um, and so it's uh, it's a risky surgery that not a lot of surgeons want to do 
So there was not a surgeon near our home that would do it. And I looked for a surgeon at UCLA and um, I'll leave that for another story, but the UCLA surgeon is a world-renowned uh, cardiothoracic surgeon, and he ended up not doing the surgery, but for for a unique reason. So uh, we'll we'll share that another time. But um, I was a little bothered by that process because he kept promising me that he was going to do surgery. You know, I got out of residency in September, and he told me that we would have surgery done in October. And I said, okay. And then December comes by and we still hadn't scheduled surgery. And um, I talked to his, his secretary who kind of indicated to me that I should just uh, look somewhere else to do surgery. So he was having some personal issues. I'll just say that. And instead of telling me that he kind of led me along. So I, that wasted like a good four months of my time trying to find surgery. And so I ended up, I, um, I knew another surgeon who did this, but he was in Florida and um, I knew him from Arizona during my rotation days and he's an excellent surgeon. So I went to him. Um, we flew out to Orlando, Florida to have surgery done. And I finally got the surgery done. Um, I had to remove the first rib on my left side um, and they, they used a robot, the Da Vinci surgery, uh, surgical robot. And they collapse your lung and then they go in through your ribs um, underneath and they resect, they cut through the first part of your first rib and they take that out. What that does is allow the, the vein to open up and the artery to open up and allow you to restore uh, normal circulation, circulation to your arm. And yeah, so, so that happened in May or no, March, March or April of 2017, I had that surgery done. And that was the most painful experience I've ever gone through. It was a very painful surgery. Um, and I was just working in urgent care at the time. And, and so in the meantime, my, my arms hadn't recovered. I'd still had this uh, numbness and tingling. I was even having trouble typing. And so it was making it a little bit difficult to even do urgent care because you have to type a lot for your notes and stuff. So I was having trouble typing because of my hands, but I was getting along, it was fine. Um, so, but I was starting to really realize the question was, you know, what are we going to do in the future? Are you going to go back to neurosurgery? What are you going to do? Are you going to go into a different residency? And uh, we had definitely explored all options and we were praying a lot, fasting. And um, that was one difficult, difficult decision-making time in our life. And we as a family and me and my wife as a couple, we, we were kind of looking for some light and some knowledge on what to do, what the Lord wanted us to do. And that was a time when I didn't have a voice come to my head. I didn't have a large spiritual revelation on this is the path, Justin, you shall do this. I did not have that. In fact, I got no answer at all. And so we were, we were kind of uh, left to ourselves to figure out our path. And near that time is, I think, when, oh, I wish I remembered the talk, but there was a general conference talk about not receiving an answer. And I think it was Elder Uchtdorf, um, and or what we feel is not an answer. And that's kind of how we felt. And so we weren't, um, we weren't discouraged by that, but it was, 
it is still a little frustrating when you're like, okay, so it's on us to make this decision. Well, which one's the best? Well, that's where you're supposed to come in, Lord. You're supposed to tell us what's the best. And he wasn't telling us that. We just didn't get that answer. And and so we we felt that, you know, it had been a year since I, almost a year since I left neurosurgery. And I hadn't fully recovered my my hands and arms yet. And I was looking at a lot of different options as my, for my career path. And um, I felt like going in a different direction, um, but I didn't have a clear path. And so we, we decided, and my wife really left this decision on me more. And she'll tell you that she kind of, or she told me that she had hoped that I would have something more um, solid than, well, we're just going to make our own path. And she had hoped that either I would go back to neurosurgery or find another residency, but um, she wasn't fully on board with not going back to any residency, but that's what I chose to not go back to any residency. And so I um, did a lot of uh, legal studying investigation. I talked with a lawyer and um, learned how to create my own business and learned about being an independent general practitioner and working in urgent care. And I looked and I learned that urgent care is a path that um, is a new path. And there is a residency program or two in urgent care and there is a board certification, um, but it would require five years of experience. If I didn't go to a residency, I would just need to work in urgent care for five years. And so I said, well, I think, I think I'm just gonna do that. And I asked my wife, are we comfortable here? Can we stay here? And we both decided, yeah, we can stay here. Um, we'll, we'll see what the future holds for us. So I just decided not to go back to neurosurgery. And my chief resident was talking to me. My program director was sending me messages and wanting to know when I was coming back. And um, I just kind of, I just told them, um, I think life has taken me in a different direction. And they were baffled by that. And... I could see why, because, you know, once again, in neurosurgery, Justin said, oh, well, they'll, they'll have to kick me out. I'll never leave neurosurgery. I said that statement many, many times because there were quitters in neurosurgery, people who didn't like it because it was too hard and stuff. And so I, you know, I was, I, would, I said several times, well, they'll, they'll have to throw me out because I'm never quitting. And here I was stopping neurosurgery. So you know, I eat my own words repeatedly. So I, <laughs> I've learned to watch what I say a lot. I make those declarative statements about things I'll never do. I just need to watch that out, watch out for that. So, uh, but yeah, I did. We decided to not go back to neurosurgery. And that was a hard decision because that was a dream of mine that I literally had for um, 10 years. In 2002, I had written down in a, you know, our stake president, our second counselor in the presidency and when I was in the Navy and he was holding a young single adult fireside or something and it was about goal setting and he had us these papers where we write down our goals and I wrote down a goal that I wanted to become a neurosurgeon and so that stuck with me all the way through getting out of the military and going to med school and in med school and I made it um, and that was in 2013 that I went into neurosurgery um, residency. And so I completed that goal in my mind where I had, okay, I made it to neurosurgery residency. 
but so leaving neurosurgery was a difficult thing for me because I felt like that was, uh, this was a spiritual thing that I did. And this was a goal that I set. And, um, but I haven't regretted that, that decision since. And so it was difficult, but I feel positive that it was the right thing for my family. And we've since had two more children. So we have five boys. And five boys. Urgent, yes, urgent care, um, general practice has given me a different perspective on life um, and allowed me to be a, a family man and somebody that gives time to my family and to the ward and the community around me. And, and so I'm really enjoying that. And I find a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment in, in the practice that I do um, with the patients and in the lifestyle that I'm able to provide my family and the time that I'm able to give to my children and to my wife. Uh, we go on dates almost every week and I have individual time with each of the kids and help them in their development. And I just would not have been able to do that um, as a neurosurgeon. And I know a lot of neurosurgeons and there are some that are even members of the church and they do it wonderfully. Um, and so I am happy for them. And, um, but I think for, for our family, this is what is working best for our family and we're happy with that. So now you're getting ready to leave California, right? And you're moving yeah. to start. Um, are you going to be in charge of the urgent care over in Kansas? Yeah. So we, um, I got a job as it's actually a hospital. So it's a rural okay. hospital in Kansas and I'll be the chief of staff. Um, it's a small hospital, so it's not um, a very big position. They're not going to make any TV um, shows after this hospital, but it is a, it's a nice county rural hospital where they have 25 beds and there's four providers there, medical providers. I'm the only doctor, so I'll be the chief of staff, but um, also the only doctor. So it's not like a, uh, a huge administrative position, but it is a good title and a good leadership experience um, for me. So yeah, we're going to be moving here in a couple months to move out to rural Kansas. And that's our next adventure. Oh, Justin, what a life. You've got an exciting life. It's, it's my life. Yeah, it's great. Five boys, Courtney's your wife, you're working, you've gone through so much. So before we end today, um, I always ask my, um, those who I'm interviewing, you know, how do you seek light on a daily basis or regularly in your life? So what do you do to seek light? Oh, I mean, that's easy. It's, it's the scriptures and prayer and, and uh, trying to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. And, and so um, I really love the morning time, literally because of the literal light. And I try, you know, I usually just wake up early naturally all by myself and I don't need an alarm clock. And um, I'm usually the first one up. Sometimes Charlie's up before me, but um, Charlie's our two-year-old. And so I, I like to go to the front part of our house, either on the front porch or in the front room where there's a lot of windows on the east facing side of our house. And that light just comes in in the morning and it's peaceful. The house is quiet. I can read my scriptures and um, ponder and listen to the spirit. And uh, that's where revelation happens. And that's where the spirit speaks to me. Justin, thanks. 
thanks so much for doing this interview with me. I really appreciate it a lot. Hey, thanks for, thanks for talking to me. Um, I don't feel like anyone special, um, but I hope that I can uh, touch somebody's life. So you definitely will. Thank you. I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.